2 Kings chapter 6. Last time we met, we looked at um, Naaman and this Syrian general that was healed. And Syria is a thorn in the side of Israel. They're a nation that the Lord is using to get the attention of Israel. And so we have this man, Elisha. Elisha, he's a traveling preacher, a practicing prophet, and a worker of miracles. But now as we open up chapter 6, we'll see he's also a job foreman. The school of the prophets. Now again, you've got these men who are called to be prophets, but understand, they still needed to go to school. There still was teaching and training that was necessary. And so the school of prophets was thriving, attendance was growing, and now they needed to expand. And so we pick up with the class and their teacher at the Jordan River, and they're harvesting lumber for their project. And what we see here is, is God's general provision for the work of ministry. And so chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan, and let every man take a beam from there, and let us make a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. Man, a few words. And he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But one was cutting down a tree, and an iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, um, he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached his own hand and took it. Now, I looked. I looked in all the commentaries that I had to try some real deep spiritual meaning for a floating axe head. And I've yet to come up with the deep stuff in the floating axe head. You know why? Because when the plain meaning is right there before you, you go with the plain meaning. And is this a miracle from God? Yeah, this is a miracle from God, but not all of them are bells and whistle miracles, if you will. We'll see one of those later on in the chapter. But what I mean by this is, is this just a, a miracle that God works, just a minor thing, if you will, in the midst of ministry. Now, an axe head would be something very valuable in that day. They didn't have the machines and the technology that we have today, obviously. When the axe head went flying off of the axe, it flew into the Jordan River. Now, I don't know if you were here. I think it was, yeah, it was last time we met, so it was two weeks ago. I wasn't here last Sunday. We had that picture of the Jordan River, and I don't know if you remember, but it was muddy, and you wouldn't be able to see the bottom, so this would all make sense. And so what we've been seeing in 2 Kings is a series of miracles. God meeting people in their everyday lives for his purposes. We've seen some big ones. We've seen a man's healings. We saw an amen as he dipped into the Jordan River and was healed of leprosy. We saw a river splitting and a child who was brought back to life. And we have also seen some more minor miracles. We saw a stew that was made better, a woman provided for, and now an axe head floating. But what we're being shown here is God simply providing for his people as they go forward in what he has called them to do. And that was all part of the Great Commission. Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples. He's baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Now, he's with us no matter what. God is everywhere, and never does that change. But the idea of being with us, he's with us for the purpose of protection, of enablement, 
but also for direction. And so this is just a picture that God is with these men as they're doing God's work of ministry. And so we have seen the simplicity of the miracle and that nothing is too hard for God. We have seen the necessity of the miracle and that man was brought to point of his limitations. And we have seen the practicality of the miracle and that they are always used for God's glory. So along this lines, Jesus, in now the great commission that I just quoted was from Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Each gospel contains a great commission, and looking at Mark's, it speaks along the lines of what we're talking about, maybe even a companion verse for what we've seen over in 2 Kings. But in Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 18, it says, Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe, and those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these things will follow those who believe in me. These things will follow those who believe in me. My name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And so he's saying, and I don't think these things are just specifically what he listed there. He's basically saying, you'll see miracles as you go out for the express purpose of making disciples as you're doing the work of ministry, or maybe a better term is just simply as you're fulfilling God's call in your life, you are going to see axe heads float, if you will. You're going to see amazing things. Again, that's how God worked when we started our church just this building. I pointed it out before, but we're over at this other property on Riverside Drive, and we have to be out in six months. And I just knew that God had called us to South Ontario. I just believe that that's what his call for us was. And so we just kind of continued on, but I'm sitting in my office, and I'm thinking, six months, that time's getting pretty close to move a whole church. Well, uh, it's a Friday morning. I remember very specifically, there was some ladies meeting with homeschool, some homeschool thing uh, elsewhere in the church. And this guy came in and I was going to direct him back there. I thought he was with the homeschoolers, but he asked, is there somebody that can help me about your church to find out more information? And I said, well, I, sh- I should be able to do that. I'm the pastor. Um, so he sat down in my office. He turned out to be a pastor as well. And just to make the long story short, he asked us if we were interested in the building. And I said, well, yeah, but we want to stay in this area because I knew of no building in this area. He goes, well, I have a church over here in Ontario at the Safari Business Center. And it's like, okay, well, let's go check it out. And it didn't look like this when we moved in. It looked like a dungeon where they, like, take people and torture them. And I think that's why the church reduced in numbers. They got tired of being tortured. Uh, I mean, it had six fluorescent lights, and they were blinking on and off. And it was just a mess. But it was all built out. We came in and we put carpet, we put paint and did a lot of other things to fix it up, but God brought us here. And, and again, I'm just really convinced just as surely as axe heads float and Syrian generals are healed of leprosy, that was a miracle. It was something from the hand of God as we were in the midst of ministry because God loves his church and he cares for his church and Calvary Chapel, Ontario is part of that. 
And you see these little miracles. I, I, I have a little bit better vantage point because I'm aware more of the things that go on. But you see those little floating axe head things, these little miracles of God's hand moving as we're moving forward in the work of ministry. And just I see it in the changed life. I can even think of one person whose name I'm not going to mention, but one person even right now, you know, just when the light goes on and they get it. And just the blessing that that is, but also the miracle that it is. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. God's in the details. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. And so just as truly as God cares for the sparrows, how much more so are you of more value when little situations and circumstances come up that need God's divine hand? Is he going to provide the big things? No doubt. And so many times we're always looking for the big things or the, you know, what we consider to be the miraculous that we miss the little things. Even as I said this morning, we're going to find out that the things that we consider to be big things on earth were really little things in heaven. The things that we consider to be little things here on earth, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to find out that those were the big things in the sight of God. Next, what we're going to see through the remainder of the chapter, actually we're not going to go all the way through the chapter here tonight, but we see the same man who was used to restore an axe head was the same man that God used to deliver the nation as well. In a Christian's life, there is the continuous flow of the seemingly small things and the seemingly big things. You must be faithful in all. As I just pointed out, we don't rate them, we just participate in them. We're just faithful in them, we just move in them because they all work together for his good. The way I see it is the supernatural things that God does in the church, they're links. They're links all the way through to somebody's salvation. And God's working in so many different lives in so many different ways. Who are we to break those links? So just as we've seen God's personal provision, we're now going to look at his national provision. Now, I want to take a little bit of a detour here. I want to go to a very familiar verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It's what I call an anthem verse. It's one of those verses that were quick to put on plaques, and I'm sure most of you have heard it. I'm sure all of you have recited it. But what I want to do is I want to look at it in the proper context. Excuse me. The verse that I'm referring to is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Well, the context is, is the God confirming the covenant that he has given. And really what we're doing here is Israel is celebrating all that the Lord has done. And they have just reestablished the um, or establish the, uh, uh, the temple and the sacrificial system within the temple and all of these things. And so we got to look at it in that context. <clears throat> now, it does stand alone, so don't get me wrong, but understand what God is requiring from a people, when I say a people, from a nation here. Look at verse 12, back up a couple of verses. Never just take one verse at face value especially if somebody's trying to prove a point using it. You've got to take it in context, looking backwards and forward, previous to it and past it. Verse 12, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer 
and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, speaking of the temple. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence amongst my people, when you see these signs that are coming upon the land, when you see these things that, well, maybe the people of the day, the secular people of the day, will refer to them as just natural disasters, things that just kind of happen, or refer to them as acts of God without really believing that they're from the hand of God. Well, we just saw that God cares for two little sparrows. How much more so does he care for his people and in command of these things? So when we see these big national things happen, haven't we seen these things happen in Houston and uh, the Caribbean and and just all of these things, uh, earthquakes in Mexico, multiple earthquakes in Mexico? It just seems like there's no stopping. And now, well, there's probably a fire somewhere in California, but we've had these big fires in California, and there always seems to be some new disease that's incurable coming down the pike and all of these things. Well, that's what he's talking about in verse 13. When I shut up the heaven and there is no rain, or command these locusts to devour, devour the land, or send pestilence amongst these people, these things that we have absolutely no control over, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their lands. Now my eyes will be open and ears attentive to prayer made in this place. You've got my attention, God is saying. For now I have chosen and sacrificed and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Well, we know because of Israel's disobedience that the house was not there forever, but Nonetheless, they had their opportunity. So what is this prayer, this anthem of verse 14 built upon? It's built upon the need for a national repentance. The people of a nation to have a heart to repent before a holy God. Remember, we were just singing holy, holy, holy. To have that heart, understanding who God is and understanding the holiness of God, the depravity of man. And when we have wandered off from God, to have a heart to come back to him. Because, you know, what the, in, in the verses that I've just read from verses 12 through 17 and really through this whole chapter, the biggest word there is in verse 14, the first one, if. It's conditional. If. And who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his people. Now, how much more so are we his people? Well, Israel, those who are governed by God, we call ourselves Christians. How much more so should we be counted amongst his people and assume the responsibility? And so the Lord... These are the things that the Lord is using within a nation. So he'll bring trials into our individual lives, but he will also bring trials into our corporate lives. The things that happen to this nation and affect this nation affect our lives. As we go into an economic downturn, as we go into these disasters, as we go off to war, it affects all of us. And so we need to be a people who are praying. We need to be a nation that is repenting. Now, it doesn't just do any good for a nation to general, generally repent. It's got to be revival with the word of God going throughout this land and people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then repenting. And so how do we do this? Well, we need to have that heart of prayer. We need to be a humble people. We need to seek the face of God. And we need to turn from the worldly, wicked ways. God healing the land. God doesn't just heal land. That's not the business that he's in. One day he's going to destroy it all. He's in healing people. Healing land means he's taken away his 
his um, just can't, I can't think of the word right now, but he, he's just taken away the tribulation that has come upon this land. And, and as he does that, it's because there was a turning to him. And so we've we got to understand this work that God is doing, especially as we go back and go ahead and turn back to Second Kings chapter 6. The land of Israel is far from God at this time. And what is God doing? Again, he does that same thing. He's knocking. He's trying to get their attention. So biblically, we see that God brings storms, God brings sicknesses, and God brings the sword to wake up his people. And both with the northern kingdom, that's what we're looking at here in Second Kings, the southern kingdom, that's what we're looking at at Thursday night with, uh, with Jeremiah. He, he sent the enemy in. And he held the enemy back and brought the enemy back out as just a warning. He brought these things into the nations to get the people's attention. And the people, for a period of time, usually they'd be afraid and they would repent. But then they got to the point that they just expected these things because they're God's people. And they continued on in their wicked ways. And they did not pray. They did not seek the face of God. And God brought disaster upon them. And so this is a wake-up call. God does not send wake-up calls to the unsaved. God today sends wake-up calls. This is important. God sends wake-up calls to the church. Why does he not send wake-up calls to the unsaved? Because they're dead. Ephesians chapter 2, they're spiritually dead. You don't, can't wake up the dead. You, they need to be regenerated or they need to be born again. And so we have to understand when there's a wake-up call, when there's signs that are designed to get a people's attention, it's designed to get, for us, the church, here when we're looking at the Old Testament, Israel, either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. So the disasters that I speak about, that's not so that the worldly people will start acting like godly people because they're unsaved people. They need to get saved again, do the first works. There are wake-up calls so that we become mobilized and we do the work of ministry. And that's how God changes hearts, is through our spoken word. It's how, well, once we wake up, share the word of God, it's how they are brought back to life. So they need to be brought back to life by the church who is wakened from its slumber. So tonight we will see God's provision to a nation that needs to wake up to God's existence to his will, and to his power. And so the first things that we see are offside. Now it has to do, it's in Syria, has to do with Elisha. But you've got the king of Syria. He's getting pretty frustrated. Now, I don't know where Naaman is in all this. Remember, he went back to Syria. He's the general that we saw last time we met who came and approached Elisha and asked for a healing. And he went and dipped in the Jordan. And then we saw that he went back to Syria but you have this king who's becoming frustrated because what he's doing is he's exercising a series of raids on the northern border of Israel. Now, when we go to Israel, you're going to see this. You're going to stand on a hill, and you'll be able to see all the way into Syria as far as you could possibly see. And so it just makes sense that that area would be very vulnerable to Syria. It says in verse 8, <clears throat> Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. 
Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place to which the man of God had told them. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? Which one is betraying us? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom, in your most private of times. What we have here for Israel is a subtle picture of the grace of God because he has every right to bring Syria in and to attack this kingdom. The northern kingdom throughout their existence, they were idolaters. They were founded in idolatry and they continued in idolatry. After we finish 2 Kings, we're going to go through Chronicles and we'll back up and we'll see a commonality. All of the kings of the northern kingdom did not do what was right in the sight of God. The kings in, the, in Judah did, not all of them, but some of them. But none of the northern kings ever did what was right in the sight of God. From the very first one, Jeroboam, all the way through to the last. And so the northern kingdom throughout their existence, they worshipped idols. When we go to Israel, you're going to see Teldan. Teldan is on that same, that one day trip that we'll take up to the north. And Teldan has one of the places that they call it Teldan because it was the area of the tribe of Dan. And they have the area where the golden calf that Jeroboam had fashioned, a, a worship place of it. They'll have an altar there that sacrifice was made to it. And this is the original place from these days that was there. Um, the foundation that is there, I believe, is original. I'm not positive of that, but it was a place of idolatry. They have done excavations there, and they've even found little calves, some made out of pottery, some even out of precious metals, because it was kind of like, you know, go to Disneyland and get a Mickey Mouse. Well, you go worship the idol, and you can take a little idol home with you kind of a thing. And so you see the reality of this, and the proof is even still there. But what you need to see is the state of the heart of God's people during that time point god had every reason to deliver his people into judgment but he kept them at this time by his grace and so once again what we're going to see here is is a wake-up call or at least an attempt at a a wake-up call genesis chapter 6 the first part of verse 3 and the lord god said my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh my spirit shall not strive with man forever But what that means is that God does strive with mankind. That's why he didn't wipe you out the first time that you sinned or did something that was an abomination in his sight. He does strive with man. He's not going to do it forever, but God's grace is going to minister to mankind. And so biblically speaking, when idolatry is presented, we have God's contrasting dominion over it. And so you have this Assyrian king. He can't comprehend a holy God. I mean, how, how come I make these plans and, and we go and we go throughout all of this effort and the king already knows about it? So the natural thing that he would be suspecting is one of his guys is passing information. And so we have, this, again, this concept of God's dominion over the false gods of the people of the world. Our children are currently learning about this as they're studying through the book of Exodus. Elijah, he defeated the prophets of Baal because their God just simply didn't exist. And the northern kingdom, they were dealt a stricter judgment than the southern. The northern kingdom, if you remember, they pretty much just ceased to exist 
They were folded into the, the land of Assyria and a foreign people were sent to populate the land. That's because their heart was completely given over to idolatry. With the southern kingdom of Judah, it was more of a disciplinary kind of a thing. And so you see that God, he did bring judgment, but you see it was based upon the hearts of the people and God's striving with mankind. And so what we're seeing here in the northern kingdom, this is the grace of God that is giving them every opportunity. So when it comes to the false gods, they have ears but cannot see. They have eye, ears but cannot see. They have eyes that cannot see. They have ears that cannot hear and mouths that cannot speak. You have a pastor that's very confused. When it comes to our living God, he knows all because God sees all. I mean, have you ever put those two together? God knows everything because God sees everything. We were just talking about it. I remember if it was in my office or whatever it was. He inhabits eternity. In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, this is a concept that King David came to a realization of. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Isn't that kind of a scary thought? That means you've searched me. You know the totality of who I am. You've searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You know when I go to bed. You know when I get up in the morning. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God knows who I am. We're told elsewhere. Matter of fact, David in his prayer to his son Solomon says, God knows the intents of your thoughts. And David says, you know me. You know the depths of who I am. You know my sinful nature. You know my thoughts. Nonetheless, you still care for me. You're still there for me. You still minister to me. And that's kind of an amazing thing. Because it's one thing to know you, because we, we can all put on the facade. But just think if we could read your mind, you know, each other's mind. And sometimes it's really hard to, to, to hide a thought, even from yourself, how much more so from somebody else. And it would probably start a lot of issues within the church. And, well, you know how that would go. But God is able to do that, and it's still okay. It's all about the grace of God and who our God is. As far as the idol, they see, but they, well, they don't see. They have eyes, but they don't see. And that's what this um, Syrian king could not get past. He's got idols, but the problem is even with those eyes, they can't see. And also the ears, and they cannot hear. Well, our God, he hears all. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. God, uh, uh, John is saying, the apostle John is saying, this is a confidence that you can have in him. If you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. Matter of fact, he wants to hear from you. He, he desires our prayers and desires that we would seek after him. And then as far as the mouth, the idols, well, again, that's why this was so far from the Syrian king. His idols, his idols can't speak. But here, God's people, they have a prophet who hears from the mouth of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God, who at various times and various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, to whom he also made the worlds. So 
It's very possible, where is it in verse 7, and I'm sorry, verse 12. And one of his servants said, uh, None, my lord, O king, but Elijah the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Now, it's very possible that that could have been Naaman. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But whoever that servant was, he was well aware of who Elisha was and who God is. He would understand this relationship between Israel's enemies, the prophet, and God. Secondly, next, we see the foolishness of the enemy revealed. Look at verses 13 and 14. So he said, go and see where he is. This is the king. Go and see where he is. Go and see where Elisha is, that I may send and get him, that I may kidnap him, basically. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Someone should have told the king, If Israel, through the prophet, by the way of God, knew of your little raids, don't you think he'd be prepared for this bigger raid? I mean, if the prophet knew that what this Syrian general was doing for all of the traps that he tried to set, when he was coming for him, don't you think he would have known? Now, pretty much in the center of Israel is where Samaria is, and about 12 miles north is where Dothan is. Dothan is just a little city, it's just a little village, and he's just, uh, Elisha's just staying in a little house. So it has absolutely, well, it's very vulnerable militarily. But you've got this king, and this king doesn't know what to do, and this king is frustrated. Now we're told in Romans, I'm sorry, Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We've got Elisha, he's as bold as a lion, because he knows that his, hand, or that his life is in the hands of the Lord. And really, you've got two contrasts here, the wicked and the righteous. This wicked king, in his foolishness, he's fleeing. Now, he's fleeing into trouble here. He's going really the wrong way. But the righteous, the prophet, he's continuing on in peace because he lives by faith. He could have taken refuge because Samaria is a walled city. So keep in mind, Elisha knows what this king is doing. And so he must understand what he's doing here, but it's okay because... He's in the safest place that he could be. Dothan is the safest place that he could be. What's so safe about Dothan? It's God's will for the prophet. Later on, we're going to see in Jeremiah that the safest place that Israel, after Babylonian captivity, or at least during Babylonian captivity, those who were left behind, the safest place they could be would be in Jerusalem because that's where God told them to be and that's where God told them to stay. Those who fled to Egypt after a murder had taken a place and so on and so forth, they tried to flee the king in Egypt, but that was not God's will. You've got Egypt, it's strong and powerful and seems safe, but the safest place to be is simply where God has called us to be, in the will of God. I personally have always found that safe place to be in the midst of ministry. That as I serve the Lord, the Lord provides and the Lord keeps in the capacity to which you're called. And so as we make God our priority, God protects us. Dothan, Dothan's exactly where Elisha needs to be. In John chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, after this, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Walk according to God, according to God's will and the light that God has, and you'll always be safe. 
If you walk in the darkness of human understanding, you're going to stumble, you're going to fall, you're going to be hurt. Thirdly, next we see God's protection revealed, verses 15 through 17. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Well, the servant's going to be a little confused because it's just the two of them, probably the school prophets, but they're not fighting men. Verse 17, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Keep in mind, just because you may be sure in your faith in such a situation, others may not be. And we see this concept of God using Elisha to strengthen the faith of this young man. This young man, we don't know who he is, going to be used in the future somehow, some way. And so God's preparing him for the work of ministry. Remember, we don't hear about everybody who God used in miraculous ways in the scriptures. Now, Elisha, did he know that there were those chariots there? I don't know if he did or not, but I do know that he knew that God's hand of protection was there. He was trusting in God because he knew what God had called him to do and where God had called him to be. And so what he was doing was just boldly, Lord, show him your protection. Give him a picture of of your protection, God. And God revealed that. Now, Elisha, he had faith. We see that even in that prayer. This young man, faith still needed to be developed. Faith and trust in God still needed to be developed. And so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the older or the more mature. He's taken an act of faith for the purpose of his own walk and confidence, but also for the reasons and purposes of those who are younger or less mature. We don't know who this servant is. More than likely, it is not Gehazi. He was the one who his last lesson ended in leprosy. It's probably, again, just somebody from the school of the prophets. And so here, Elisha prays that God would open the servant's eyes to the reality of God's protection. It just reminded me of what we've been looking at on Sunday morning in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the substance or the confidence of things hoped for. It's the confidence that we have in our future. Elisha understands my future is in the hands of God. I'm where he wants me to be. At some point, he may take me, and that's up to him, and that's fine. Faith is the substance or the confidence of things hoped for. The evidence or the, well, the evidence of things not seen. The, the, the concrete evidence of things not seen. And so we see here that this man, Elisha, he's got faith in God, and we see this as as an indicator of his relationship with God, his trust in God, and the knowledge of what God is able to do. The glimpse of his might that God gives to us is so that that we would grow to live by faith and not by sight. So lastly, we see God's grace revealed, verses 18 through 23. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But 
but he led this but he led them to Samaria. So you have to look at this and the question would be, isn't he telling them something false? No, he's leading them to the man that they would want to see. Just not showing him that man there, but he's going to take them to Samaria. There's some lessons to be learned. Verse 20. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and they were inside Samaria. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you would have taken captive with your sword and your bow? The idea was they're not your prisoners. Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and went to their master. So the band of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. If he kills those troops, it probably starts an all-out war. But the feeding of the troops, it's brought peace. It's brought peace. And so you got Elisha here, a man who is exercising wisdom, and he's going about it completely contrary to how the world and the worldly go about it. We have a little picture of this, another companion verse, if you will, a cross-reference. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peacefully with all men. Beloved, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, this term means that you'll bless him. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's exactly what they're doing here, what we see here with with the prophet. And so the prophet, why did he send them back? Well, the same reason that Naaman went back. Went back in order to tell them of the good things that God has done and the goodness of God himself. Remember when Jesus healed the demon-possessed man in the gatherings? We're not going to turn there, but the account is in Mark chapter 5. He healed them, and everybody was marveled, but they really didn't want anything to do with Jesus. I mean, these were people who were worldly and in sin. They were Jews, and they were raising pigs, which they ought not to have been doing. And, and it's kind of like the world. They kind of like the demon-possessed guy like he was. Anyway, Jesus is getting ready to leave, and the, demon, the man who was formerly demon-possessed comes up to him and says, take me with you. And he goes, no, you go back, and you tell these people of the good things that I have done. And that's the whole idea behind the army, this this raiding band, that you would go back and you would tell them of the mercy that God exhibits to his people. They had every right to put him to death, but they didn't for the purpose of a witness. And so God, God was knocking on the door of Israel. He led, uh, he led Syria right up to the borders, right up the borders to get their attention. And unfortunately, they continued on in the flesh. They still have some more time here, but they continued on in the flesh. What about our nation? Are we getting it? I mean, as a nation, are we getting it? Are we understanding these things that are going on? 
I mean, you'll, you'll hear, you know, some disaster will go on and then they'll find Franklin Graham or, or whoever it might be and they'll ask him about this. Now, is this God or does this just happen? And, you know, Franklin Graham usually get a good answer. And, and the world is just trying to make sense of these things that make no sense. Makes no sense why we always have these murders that are going on. We have these people that are dying and these homes that are being wiped out. They're just not understanding that this is a holy God exercising grace trying to get their attention that they may repent, that they may, re- they may turn from their wicked ways, and they may turn towards the living God. Because he's got eyes to see, he's got an ear to hear, and he does have a mouth to speak. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your word, and I just pray, Father, for, Lord, just this example, that we would see the reality and how all things work together for your good. And that, Father, we would have a confidence as we see these things as, as my wife says, as we see these things that seem to be spinning out of control, in actuality, they're falling into place, falling into place according to your will. And so, Father, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace in our lives, Lord, that you strove with us and you were long-suffering with us until the day of our salvation. I pray, Father, for those of the world that you will continue to do so, that you will continue to strive and be gracious, that, Father, we would see others coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as well. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this day that you have given us. I pray for those who have come out tonight that you would go before them. I pray that you would bless us and that you would use us, Father, in this week to come for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please?